Well, John chapter 17 is part of an extended series of proclamations by the Lord Jesus made sometime between the Last Supper and his arrest. And while we don't have a clear picture of exactly where these words were spoken, I think it would be reasonable to assume that by this time Jesus and the disciples were in the garden. The disciples have just announced that they believe that Jesus did come from God, and Jesus warned them of the scattering and persecution to come, and also reminds them that whatever does come, he will be with them, and that through and in him they will not only find safety, but victory. Take courage, Jesus said to his disciples. I have conquered the world. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and began to pray this prayer. And the prayer may be divided into three sections. In the first five verses, Jesus testifies before God that he has completed the work that God has given him to do. And that work was to proclaim the truth of God's salvation as the way to eternal life. The work of proclamation was finished, Jesus said, and so he is now ready to be glorified. And as we've come to expect from John's Jesus, his use of the word glorified has layers of meaning. Lifted up as on the cross, raised up as from the dead, ascended into heaven, exalted to the right hand of God. So with his work completed, Jesus invites the one he calls Father to glorify him. Then in verses 6 to 19, which is our text for today, that Jesus prays for his disciples, for those gathered around him there in the garden. And then in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for all of those generations of disciples still to come. Jesus prays for us. And he prays that those generations will trust the witness of the disciples. He prays that we'll trust the stories collected by the disciples, written down by the evangelists, and then shared with Christian communities, and ultimately preserved in what we call the New Testament. This part of the prayer addresses the same concern that we noted some weeks ago in the story of Thomas. Thomas was indeed blessed to witness the risen Jesus, to see his hands and his feet, to see his side, hear him call his name. But, Jesus says, even more blessed are those of us who believe what we did not see, who believe what we learned from those who did see, who believe because of the report of the disciples to us. Blessed are those who believe because of the testimony of the disciples. New Testament scholar and preacher Fred Craddock calls us to read our text, verses 6 to 19, with that concern in mind, to read our portion of this prayer through the lens of Jesus' desire that future generations believe the disciples and their testimonies, that future generations of believers, people like us, would find those testimonies to be trustworthy and true. And when we read our text that way, Craddock suggests, we can see it as not only a prayer, but also a sermon, a prayer prayed by Jesus, a sermon preached by John. Craddock writes, and I quote, and this is a longer quote. I thought about just kind of reworking it in my own words, but then I thought he does such a better job. So Fred Craddock writes, and I quote it first, it may not seem all that important to listen to Jesus pray for the 12, for probably by the time this gospel was written, they were all dead. So why not concentrate on prayer for the early church and for our church? The fact is, Jesus' prayer for his disciples is in behalf of the church through succeeding generations, for it is vital to the life of the church to know that the revelation, the truth from Jesus, has been faithfully transmitted. 
In other words, can we trust the revelation we've received? Verses 6 through 19 say, yes, we can. The apostles were given by God to Jesus. Jesus gave to them the word of God. They received that word, believed it, and kept it. They had not been corrupted by the world, for they were not of the world, which in fact hated them. Even though one of them had gone astray, even that was within God's knowledge. And according to scripture, just as Jesus had sanctified himself in total dedication to God, so the disciples, the apostles were set aside, set apart, consecrated for the truth. And the apostles had as their sole purpose the continuation of the mission that Jesus had from God. The evangelist has left no doubt to plague subsequent generations of believers. The church is not an orphan in the world, the creation of a religious imagination, the frightened child of huddled rumors and popular superstitions. For those who need to examine the credentials of the church's life and message, here is truth's pedigree. From God, to Christ, to the apostles, to the church. End quote. Now, one of the things that I do on a fairly regular basis in my role as pastor here is provide letters of reference for members of the congregation who are seeking employment. And it's always a pleasure vouching for the good characters and the gifts and abilities of people that I know to be people with, well, good characters and gifts and abilities. It's a joy to be able to bear witness to what I've seen in them and to offer a recommendation based on what I've seen, to let the prospective employer know that this particular candidate is indeed worthy of their serious consideration. And it's especially fun when the person in question actually lands the job. Well, in a way, in a way that's what um, John is doing for his audience down through the ages. In this case, he's recommending a message by spelling out all the reasons why that message can be trusted. From God to Christ, from Christ to the apostles, from the apostles to the church, the gospel message came to John's audience, came to us in the same kind of straight and miraculous line that we find, for example, in the opening um, paragraphs of the Gospel of Matthew. The lineage is straight and true and so can be trusted. We weren't there to hear this prayer. We did not see the scars on Jesus' hands. We did not meet John or Peter or Paul. We did not meet Mary or Mary Magdalene or Salome. But still, as we listen to Jesus pray, we find ourselves reminded that the gospel we believe is the very same gospel given by God to Christ, by Christ to the apostles, and by the apostles to the early church, and so on, until that gospel was proclaimed within our hearing. Now, as Sue Groff said at Pastor Sue's ordination, we are part of a long and deep stream of history. The church started a long time ago, and will be around for a long time to come. And we're privileged to be part of that flow for a time, to enter into something bigger and deeper and wider than we can imagine. And John tells us that stream has its source, the very hand and will of God. We often think of Christian unity as referring to some existential moment of harmony, um, a point in time in which everybody's facing in the same direction with the same smile on our faces and all saying cheese uh, in, uh, in one voice. Um, and we pray for that unity, and why not? It's, it's hard to commune with people with whom we disagree. Anybody who's ever been to a family gathering knows that. Um, we pray for that unity, and why not? It's hard to remain in relationship when that disagreement 
is right out in the open, and especially when it's about something that all sides believe to be essential to their faith or central to the gospel or in some other way non-negotiable. We know we're called to live together in love, and we know all about that oil running down through Aaron's beard, but we sometimes question whether the biblical writers knew just who we'd be stuck sitting next to in church. And if they had, well, certainly there'd have been a few more loopholes built into the plan, don't you think? Well, that kind of unity is worth striving for. And we need to hold it up as a value. The perfect vision that Christ offered us to prod us on toward becoming better than we would otherwise be. And sometimes we get there. Sometimes we really do come to a peaceful resolution of our differences or we're able to find sufficient common ground to allow us to stand together for a bit. And I believe that when we do, the angels clap their hands and we feel like we're living a dream and we do our best to hold on to the memory so that, Lord willing, we'll find our way back there in the middle of the next conflict. In the end, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised how elusive this unity can seem. After all, Jesus said that we are one in the same way that he is one with the Father. Have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to somebody? Well, if you have, um, perhaps you know maybe why unity is equally elusive. But there's also comfort in these words, I think, that they may be one, as we are one. I mean, think about it. Even if we can't figure out exactly how it is that God and Christ are one, we claim it to be true, right? I mean, it's not as if it's true only once in a while or when everybody thinks the right thoughts or when God and Jesus decide to stick together. It is, we proclaim. They are one, period. Which suggests to me that maybe that the unity we have in Christ is also just the way it is, that it's not something dependent upon us, but is in some way determined by the very will of God, that the condition lurking behind that word may has already been met in Christ, that in the end that may will become an are, as in that they are one as we are one. That's hard to imagine, I know. If you look in the yellow pages under the word church, um, or you read John Ruth's history of Lancaster Mennonite Conference, or any other history of the church, you'll see the disagreements and fights and splits, and then more disagreements and fights and splits, well, kind of characterize that history. It's enough to keep every Mennonite conflict professional busy till eternity. Well, one day when I was despairing over this tendency for the church to argue and fight and splinter. My demon project advisor told me that she believes that it is precisely in the tension, in the disagreeing, in the fighting, that the spirit is most often clearly at work. Many of our earliest Christian creeds were the results of brawling, fist-fighting bands of priests duking it out over fine points of doctrine, the original West Side story, if you will. The Protestant Reformation was the result of intense and even violent disagreement as was our own Anabaptist Reformation. Um, I sometimes wonder if our Anabaptist forebears would recognize us kind and gentle folk. All of which is to suggest that we are right to question the whole notion of Christian unity, um, if by that we mean it's this perfect harmony as being anything more than an occasional thing. And, and perhaps that's all to the good if my advisor's right. And if we believe that the Spirit did in fact lead Martin Luther to nail that message on the church door, and Conrad Grebel and George Blaurock to start baptizing each other against the teaching of the church. So maybe we need to look in another direction for this promised unity. 
Maybe we need to look for it in that great stream of Christian history. Maybe we need to look not so much at individual points along its banks or those points where the water is particularly rough or particularly smooth. Maybe we ought not to spend our time searching for little points of unity along the way, but instead step back and consider the whole stream. Step back and recall where that stream begins, where it is headed, and see it as a whole, see it as a unity, a single creation of God's own design, sometimes dangerous, sometimes corrupt, sometimes benign, sometimes healing, but always moving, we believe, always moving along the course that God has laid for it, to see ourselves as one with that big old stream, even if we can't see ourselves as being one with the Christian sister or brother sitting right across the table from us. Here's the thing. When I began my doctoral project, I was under the impression that the ordination of women was a new phenomenon in the church, that it was the result of a more enlightened reading of the scripture, one of those times when Christians heeded the spirit despite what they'd always believed to be true, like Peter and that sheet full of bacon, uh, the house full of Gentiles, one of those moments when some of us at least experienced a revelation from the Lord and now had to convince the various powers that be that what had been revealed to us was in fact a word from the Lord. Well, I was soon disabused of this impression. Early on in my project process, my advisor suggested that I read a new book by a scholar called, uh, named Gary Macy, a book with the um, rather sensational title, The Hidden History of Women's Ordination. Oxford University Press. Anyways, I went ahead and bought the book like any dutiful um, student would, um, but did not actually read it like any real live student wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> But the further along that I got in the project, um, well, somewhere along the way, my advisor's suggestion became a demand, read this book. And by that time, I was smart enough to know that you don't ignore the woman who's going to decide whether or not you pass. And so I read the book. And what I found surprised me. And in fact, despite its sensational title, uh, the book is a dense and sometimes even dry, can you believe it, examination of the historical evidence for women's ordination in the Western church from the third to the 12th centuries. And there's a lot of that evidence. Ordination was a much broader practice in those days and was offered for a whole bunch of roles in the church. As my advisor said, if you had a job in the church, you were ordained for it. Men and women were ordained, and women were ordained to significant leadership roles, including that of abbess and deacon. And there's even some evidence that women were ordained to preside over the sacraments and celebrate the Eucharist. Then, in the 12th century, everything changed. Ordination became linked to celebrating the Mass, and it was decided that only men could celebrate the Mass, so only men were to be ordained from that point on. Well, then the canon lawyers had to figure out how to explain the fact that just a few decades earlier, women had been ordained, and so their solution was to argue that well, whatever that had been, it, it wasn't a real ordination. It was, it was a blessing or some such thing, um, but not an ordination. And over time, um, that earlier history was lost. 900 years of history, by the way. And so folks like me learned to believe that ordination of women was something brand new, enlightened, and a product of the 20th century. Now, to wind this whole rabbit trail back to the sermon, as I read Macy's book 
and had my understanding of the history of the church changed, I had what felt an awful lot like a conversion experience. And I think you know what I mean. I mean, one minute your world looks one way. One, way, one minute you understand the world in a certain way. And then the very next minute, it looks entirely different. In this case, I could suddenly discern the larger course of the stream of church history and recognize that my personal conviction about the ordination of women did not, in fact, represent some brand-new spirit-inspired little rivulet joining up with the broader stream somewhere in the 20th century. No, what I believed was, in fact, part of something much older, much deeper, going all the way back to the early church that had somehow been submerged along the way and was only discernible by those with eyes to see, but it really was there all along. And here's why I think this matters and perhaps connects to this sermon. Suddenly I realized that I had allies in the faith going way back, allies I'd never known about or knew existed, but allies all the same, men and women and entire Christian communities engaging in the very practice that I once thought was brand new. Suddenly, the burden of making the case for ordination did not only belong to me and my contemporaries in the church. Our position, our hope, our conviction was rooted in the deepest parts of the Christian tree. Or to stick with the stream metaphor, our position, our hope, our conviction can be found way, way upstream. And that makes, I believe, a huge difference. Not that the Spirit does not continue to surprise and disconcert us with brand new things. God is, after all, a creating God, the God who makes all things new. And we are deeply blessed because of that wild Spirit's work among us, the work proclaimed to us by our sister Megan Raymer last Sunday. Still, there is something healing and reassuring in knowing that what we believe and what we proclaim can be traced back upstream, back to the beginning, when God gave the gospel to Christ who gave it to the disciples, who gave it to the early church, who passed it along generation after generation, giving us contemporary Christians someplace to stand even 2,000 years later. We are indeed one with that stream. If not in the sense of getting along with each other or remaining in communion with those with whom we disagree or making peace with the Catholics and Episcopalians and Baptists and Independents and laying down all that separates us and coming together in some great cosmic hug, well, Lord willing, that day will come. If nothing else, I believe it is where history and the Holy Spirit is taking us. But until that day, until that day, I pray that we'll hear the words of Jesus as they are offered to us by John, both a prayer and a sermon, a stating of the facts, a recommendation, if you will, of the gospel that we have received, a map of the place where that church history started, that stream in which we can rightly say we are indeed one as Christ and God are one, participants in God's salvation, which unites us not only in the here and now, but across time and eternity. And so I invite us to take a step back and see the whole stream, sort of an ascension view of things perhaps, um, to step back and look at the bigger picture and give thanks. And not only for those places along the way where the water seemed just right to us, familiar and healing and supportive, but also for those places which frighten us which disturb us, which embarrass us, perhaps even shame us. Not because we overlook those points along the way, but because even there, perhaps, we can discern the truth of what Jesus said, 
that in ways we cannot explain, no more than we can explain the relationship between Father and Son and Holy Ghost, the church is indeed one. May we know that and find strength and hope for what lies ahead. Because just as the stream of Christian history has its source in God and in the work of Jesus Christ, so too is its ending. And so we rest assured that even as we are now one in history, we will one day be one in every other way, just as God and Christ are one. May God make it so. God has made it so. Amen.